Hi everyone and welcome back to the Drinks with Allie podcast, where we're talking everything from red red wine to pina coladas. My name is Allie and this is episode 34. Today is Wednesday, March 10th, meaning this is a Wine Wednesday show. And in keeping with both the wine theme and the fact that Monday was International Women's Day, today let's talk about take a look at some super awesome women in wine. Now, there are so, so, so many fantastic women in wine that we would be here for days talking about each and every one of them. So unlike distilling and even brewing, where women are a bit of a rarity, the wine world actually has quite a number of female winemakers, viticulturalists, uh, brand ambassadors, sales and uh, marketing reps. Um, So instead of looking at each and every one of those very amazing individuals that we have now in the industry, let's take a look at some of the most influential women in the wine industry from years gone by. And just before we get started, guys, I would like to mention that yesterday, so Tuesday, uh, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Spurrier passed away. And if you don't know who Stephen Spurrier is, he was basically instrumental in kind of launching California wine on an international scale in the 70s. Um, He created and curated the Judgment of Paris tasting and was a real champion for winemaking um, both in Europe and in North America um, and definitely a big champion of Californian wines. And he passed away, which is very sad. He was a very influential man in the world of wine. Um, So he Obviously, was not a woman, but very influential, and it's been a bit of a, a sad day for everybody. It was yesterday when we were talking about um, the passing of Mr. Spurrier, so hats off to you, Mr. Spurrier. So let's jump into this episode, though. Our very first kick-a lady in wine uh, is one that I happen to think is pretty cool, and one that is near and dear to my heart, we have a woman who basically single-handedly revolutionized the champagne and therefore the sparkling wine industries. Her name is Barb Nicole Clicquot. Yep, that one, that same Clicquot. In fact, she gives the name Veuve to the Veuve Clicquot name. Uh, Veuve is the French word for widow. So um, her brand became known because she was a widow and uh, just kind of rolled with her. So at the age of 27, her husband dies. They were married when she was 21, so they weren't married very long, leaving her not only to run her household, but also um, with her hands in a lot of his business dealings. These entailed banking, wool trading, and a champagne house. They did live in Champagne. And um, she and her husband were married in what was basically a business deal. Um, Their fathers lived next door to each other. They were both merchants, and they kind of conglomerated their power by marrying their children together, as they did. It's the early 1800s. So obviously there was a bit of some intrigue going on there. Um, So she decides that the Champagne House is where she wants to focus her energy And at the time, Champagne was known more for its still wines than really its sparkling wines, even though it had been invented by this point or discovered. So we already have the idea of secondary fermentation bubbles in the bottle. Champagne just wasn't really well known for it. 
So Babnikal goes to her father-in-law and says, basically, I'd like to risk my inheritance and have you invest in me running the wine business. He agrees, but only on the condition that she undergo an apprenticeship. Babnikal obviously agrees, and originally her business falters. Just the same. Despite the apprenticeship, despite her passion and everything else, it falters. But as the Napoleonic Wars come to a close, um, which I believe is the early 1800s, so maybe she was married in the 1700s, she decides that her wine is going to be the wine that the Russians, and therefore the largest market share, drink when they celebrate. So she decides to smuggle her wine, which, by the way, were super sweet. At 300 grams per liter, it was as sweet as most dessert wines that we would drink today. So definitely not something we would be accustomed to drinking now. Um, So she decides to smuggle her wines to Amsterdam, hoping that the Russians would love it and buy it all up and buy oodles and oodles and oodles of bottles. And boy, oh boy, did that risk pay off. Tsar Alexander I announced that Barb Nicole's champagne was the only champagne he would drink. Obviously, this would be akin to, I don't know, Jay-Z or some other celebrity, super famous person. I don't know. I don't really know a lot of celebrities like that, guys. Um, Endorsing your wine or product or anything else that you are selling for that matter. Um, Her business literally exploded overnight. Now, at the time, champagne was incredibly laborious, even more so than it is today. Um, And the Viv realized that she was going to have to improve this process if she was going to meet the demand she had now created for herself. So at the time, to remove the yeast from the wine, um, so remembering we need yeast in this bottle for secondary fermentation to happen, the bottles were opened And the wine was painstakingly and very carefully poured from one bottle into another, trying to rack off just the clear juice so that you didn't get any of the lees. So Babnikal decides to create the process that we now call riddling, and she does it by using her dining room table and drilling holes in it. Hello, innovative. Riddling is, as we know, the process of consolidating the yeast into the neck of the bottle by painstakingly turning the bottles. I believe it is five degrees sideways and two degrees downward. I could be wrong. It might be five and five. Um, in traditional wineries, the Riddler can turn as many as 40,000 bottles in a single day. It's a lot of bottles. There are automated machines now, um, but even to this day, A lot of traditional wineries still employ a Riddler, and sometimes even a more modern winery will still use a Riddler to come in on some of their more special vintages to have them move those bottles and kind of control what's going on. So the Viv's use of the Riddling table allowed her to brew her champagne way faster than her competitors, and it was especially annoying to one of her closest neighbors, Jeremy Moet. Yep, those Moets the same ones you know today. But luckily it would be decades before any of them found out how she was doing it so quickly, as none of her workers would ever tell her secret. By the time of her death in 1866, the brand of Viv Clicquot 
was already a global empire. However, she never left France herself, since it was inappropriate at the time for women to travel alone, and she never remarried, instead dedicating herself to her champagne and building her business. Super cool. So if the Vive Clicquot changed the course of history by streamlining champagne, then the next amazing woman to talk about would be Lalou Bies Leroy. Um, she is arguably one of the women to change modern winemaking and kind of change the face of it. She's from a winemaking family in Burgundy, and she took over her father's negociant business in 1955. So we're talking like not even 10 years post-war here, guys. And she decides she's going to take over her father's wine business, and she's going to make it into what it's going to be. So a negociant assembles wines from either grapes, juice, or must, or wines from various smaller growers within Burgundy to create a wine under their own name or brand. Until very recently, this was how most wines were made in Burgundy. We're starting to see smaller grower Burgundies, um, but there are still a lot of negociants. It's not a mark of quality. It's not a mark of non-quality. It just is what it is. So in 1974, Bieselois joined the Domaine de la Romanie Conti, or the DRC, as co-manager. While at the DRC, along with Aubert de la Vilaine, she helped to build the DRC into one of, if not the, most highly sought-after wine brands in the world. Seriously, guys, these are bottles go for thousands of dollars. I'm talking like five to $10,000 US a bottle. They are some of the most coveted bottles in the world and some of the hardest ones to come by. So unfortunately, a series of disputes would lead to her being ousted in 1992, but fear not, Bizelwa had been acquiring land of her own within Burgundy for her own Domaine Leroy, which was her father's name. Um, and she kind of had it going as a side project while she was at the DRC. And during the 1990s, she established Leroy as a leading Burgundy brand. Um, it currently has classification as both a Premier Cru and a Grand Cru Burgundy. Um, so repeating very much so her, sec her success with the DRC um, at her own winery. And also, slightly ironically, Bizois still owns one quarter of the Domaine de la Romanie Conti. So kind of strange that she uh, left and was ousted, but she still has her hands quite literally in the pie when it comes to the ownership. So about 10 years after Bizois appears on the scene, the first female winemaker in California since Prohibition arrives, becoming the first woman to receive a degree in Enology Fermentation Sciences from the University of California, Davis. Her name? Marianne Graff. In 1965, after graduation, she joins the team at Gibson Wine Company as assistant winemaker and chemist. Her big break, though, came in 1973 when she landed a job as head winemaker at Simi in Sonoma. Now, there's a bit of confusion here when I was looking this up, guys. One article that I read on Simi said it was one of the first female-owned wineries in the world. 
and that that was around the same time that Marianne Graff was working there. But then another anecdote that we'll share in a little bit mentions that um, when she was working at Simi, it was owned by a gentleman. So I'm not really sure there. Um, it was sold uh, in 1979, so I'm not sure if maybe the current owners are female or what that is there, but that is a bit of a side note to it. So at the time, in 1973, very, very, very few women held jobs of this magnitude. So Marion Graff definitely kicking butt and taking names. And like I said, in 1979, when Simi was sold, um, Marianne Graff pivoted uh, to her own business called Vinquiry, um, which provides independent lab testing on Sonoma County wines. And in 2003, she retired. And unlike Beeslawaz, she has passed away since. So we're missing another star in our kind of, or I guess we gained another star in our sky of amazing female winemakers. But not only was Graf the first female to graduate from UC Davis with a degree in oenology, and the first female winemaker in modern California winemaking, she was also the very first woman to sit on the board of directors of the American Society for Enology and Viticulture. So pretty much kicking it when it comes to just about everything in the wine industry in the U.S., and definitely blazing the trail for a lot of um, female winemakers that are out there today. Funny side story, because I did tell you I would mention um, from when she was at Simi. Just so we can get a grasp on how far we've really come, the daughter of Simi's owner, back when um, Graf was working there, remembers hearing panicked French being spoken by men behind closed doors whispered off in the corner when she first started working with Graf, their worry that the yeast strains these two intrepid women were culturing would somehow interfere with the winemaking process, therefore creating inferior wines. Oh my, how far we've come, and really how far we haven't come. Um, there are still so many women who uh, battle against these kind of prejudices, in the wine industry, that it is not funny. So like I said, guys, there are plenty of current female winemakers, viticulturalists, sales professional, brand stewards, brand ambassadors, and countless other jobs out there. It sometimes takes a little bit of digging to find out who they are. Um, I will not, like I said, I will not list them all. There are far too many of them, and they are far too amazing, um, especially when I haven't had the chance to taste a lot of them, which is very sad, but I'm getting there. I'm going to work on my list. Um, but nowadays, if you're looking, most wineries are super proud of their women and they post about them on their social media on the regular, or they at least post about them on their website. So do a little digging, try and find some, um, two, I guess I'll give you three that popped to mind right off the top of my head. McBride Sisters in California, and Chateau Saint Michel in, I believe it's Oregon, might be Washington. I get those two confused really badly in like geographics in my head. And Anne Sperling, who has a winery in 
BC, and she's also the winemaker at Southbrook in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Three amazing female winemakers, uh, and they're ones that I know the first two, you can definitely find them in most marketplaces, because though I can't find McBride Sisters, I can find Chateau Saint-Michel here. So with that, guys, we will wrap up another episode. If you have a favorite female winemaker, I'd love to hear about them. So head on over to the website, hit podcast episode 34's page, and leave me a note down on the bottom so I can uh, see who you're enjoying and what ladies you want to help support. If you want to get in touch with me because you have a question, comment, or show topic idea, you can do that in a few ways. You can head to that website, which is drinkswithally.com. You can click any of the podcast episodes and leave a note on those. You can click the contact me form and fill it all in and it will come directly to me. Or if you would prefer the good old fashioned email way, you can send me an email to drinkswithally at gmail.com and I will again get them and I'll send an answer right back to you or I'll turn it into a show topic. If you'd like to find me on social media, it's really easy. My handle is at drinkswithally, remembering that my last my name is spelled A-L-I. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, MeWe, TikTok, and Spotify. Um, so with that, guys, fill your glass with something, hopefully female-led, that is super tasty. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>